I have worked for two other companies, I won't say which one is which, that are very large. And I would say in those, one of them was, it's our way, our hours, always. And the other one was very independent of one another. So the regions worked completely in silos from one another. And so that I didn't find to be the most expeditious to get stuff done. It might be the most careful uh, for one of them, but it was not the most expeditious. And we're in a rush because we have to change the world by 2030. Budget overruns, brick devices, data breaches, building connected products is hard. Welcome to Over the Air, sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. I'm your host, Ryan Prosser. Welcome back to Over the Air. IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Very, and today we're joined by Beverly Ryder, CCO of Autonomous, a Neom company, and CEO of Portfolio T. We're going to be talking about, within the world of IoT, what to do when you can do anything, but you can't do everything. Beverly, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So this interview is going to be kind of interesting because I want to talk a lot about what you're up to right now, because what you're up to right now is frankly fascinating, but you've been in IoT for a while. So I think your background is also pretty relevant. Can you give us a little bit of background on you and your career to date and also the background of some of the companies we're going to be talking about today? Absolutely. So I've been super fortunate in my career to say yes to a lot of things. That's my secret sauce is I just say yes whenever anybody asks me to do anything. And as a result of that, I've got to practice law, run large corporate telecom companies, as well as um, start an IoT back when it was called M2M. I was the CCO or the chief commercial officer, I should say, for both General Electric and Hitachi. And in the midst of that was found by a company called Neom in Saudi Arabia. As they explained it to me, they were building basically a new economic state and come and join them and help them change the world. So that's where I am today. And I can't wait to talk to you more about it. I feel like, you know, a very impressive career that spans a couple decades just got, you know, captured in an impossibly small bite-sized piece. But I, I think some of some of it's going to play out over the course of this episode. So let's jump right into it. We haven't even hinted at this so far, but talk about the relationship between what you're doing and where you are currently sitting right now, geographically. Absolutely. So what's happening is that in Saudi Arabia, they've decided to take 26,000 square kilometers and to turn that into the most sustainable location to live, work, play in the world. And through that, they there was nobody there before, total greenfield. And in that greenfield experience, you got to go from the ground up on every single type of enterprise, including technology. So you got to start from scratch and decide what was it going to be? How is it going to be? How could it be sustainable? How could it be all-inclusive? And that's the promise of what Neom is to the world. Luckily, I work for a technology, which is one of the first three things that you have to have in order to operate, right? You need water, you need electricity, and you need technology. And so as a result of that, we just recently spun out as a separate subsidiary, a company called Autonomous, which holds all of the technology assets, the infrastructure, the cognitive solutions, the metaverse, and the venture studio, of which I'm CEO. So, okay, there's a lot here, and which is why this, I think, is going to be a really interesting episode. One thing I wanted to ask you about, I traveled through as a young MBA 
in 2007 at that time, halfway through my program. And I was in Hong Kong, making my way to London to complete the program. And I was invited to stop in Saudi Arabia to look at uh, what was then, I think, being called the, it was a concept called the King Abdullah Economic Zone. I think I got that right. And it was the scale of what they were talking about relatively casually was like three orders of magnitude beyond gigantic. And I, you know, they asked me my thoughts on it. I tried to give some thoughts, but I'd never been in the room while something of that scale was even being contemplated. Even what do you do? You know, the name of this episode is what to do when you can do anything, but you can't do everything. This definitely, I think, describes the Saudis. They could, they have the resources, it seems, to be able to do anything. No one can do everything. Does it scare you? Does it, what is it like to be attached to something that is that gigantically grand? Your thing feels like an extension of what that embryonic idea at that time was. Yeah, it absolutely is. So, you know, it's interesting. I I got asked this question earlier today as well, and I've been thinking about it ever since even more so. And I think it's twofold. One is it should be scary. If you're trying to change the world, then it absolutely should be scary. It should worry you. You should worry about it every day until you achieve that goal. A goal that changes the world, right? It takes so much effort from so many people and so many people need to move in the same direction. I think that that's a fair element. I think that from a scale perspective and the thought process that is it going to happen, is it possible to happen, there's a few things. The first one is some of what needs to happen hasn't actually been invented yet. So luckily, we have more than a year to do it. Secondly, I think that what we do need to do today, I am personally, because I'm on site, I'm seeing demonstrable progress happening. And I'm seeing it, you know, when we got there, there was, as I said, there's no water, no electricity, no technology. Today, we have we have roads in order to move trucks and dirt and supplies um, before we have the line and the spine, which is going to go underground. We have electricity to all of the locations. We were at 150 employees. We now have 3,000 along with their families. We have housing for all of them. We have a mess hall. We have a hospital. We have a school that's fully there. So you can actually see it. You can see buildings going up. You can see infrastructure being put in. In the United States, where we might put up maybe three or four you know, phone poles in a day. Here, they seem to be able to, same staff can do 150. I don't know how it happens, but you can see the progress on a day-to-day basis. There can be no gas station in a place one day and the next day you see it. In addition to that, from a technology perspective, since we've gotten here, which is about a year and a half ago, we put in a 30 terabit subsea cable. We put in satellites up into the air, about 20 of them. We put in 2,200 square kilometers of fiber And we also put up a massive amount of cell towers so that there's ubiquitous Wi-Fi coverage. So those things alone are a lot. But in addition to that, we're working on countless products that are new to market. We started a venture studio and we've done three major JVs with other large companies and got our first customer in Oracle who's coming to our hyperscale data center. Okay, there's a ton there. Let's pinch zoom in a little bit. For a company... As big as autonomous, how do you employ, how do you take gigantic and pare it down? Again, yeah. the name of the, you know, the title of this episode is like, what to do when you can do everything, anything, but you can't do everything. How do you start picking the everythings 
from the, yeah. or the anything's from the everything's. What are the filters you employ to say, these are the things that I think we should be doing in an ocean of things that we could accomplish? Yeah, well, I will tell you that when I first started and we were brainstorming on the board, there were humanoids and robotics and a lot of holograms and a lot of really sexy stuff for technologists that were up on the board. And instead, we started with infrastructure because none of that stuff works without infrastructure. So what I'll tell you is that the great thing about Neom and the promise of that as well as Tonimus is it's dreamers that do, right? It's people that have that dream, have that vision, but to that, they have to then take what they've learned in their whole careers because there's a lot of old people like me. And so there, you take your whole career and then you say, what have I learned in my particular industry? And how do I apply that construct, those gates, and that thought process to the impossible, because that is, we're pushing the edges of what's bleeding technology for us. And we're trying to figure out what the next thing is, right? We want to be what is invented in 2030. We want to have been the ones that invented it, even though most people don't know what that's going to be today. So that part is super exciting. From a actual methodology, there's an entire framework that we employ. And so it was easy on infrastructure what does it take to run 6 million people in a bunch of different geographies, in a mountainous terrain, in a sea terrain, in a, you know, how do you get that coverage that you need? How do you get um, the basics and how do people deploy when there's only 7% cloud penetration in a region? So what do you need in order to move to the next steps? And the nice thing about that is you can also apply history to that framework. So you can see other regions that have developed in that way and apply that same type of framework, but a more expedited pace as a result of the fact that you can do it faster because you already know what the answer is. And so that allows you to move faster. One of the things that that we hear a lot about from market-oriented people is, I guess, what I would describe as like a journey in which they are seeking out pain. They're looking for pain points. Is this something that you also employ where you're looking for market pain? Yeah, actually, it's the key to our process. So we have this five-stage process. It's ideation, incubation, acceleration, well, building, actually, and, and multiple iterations of build, then acceleration and scale. And so through that process, we don't get to any of the next pieces of the process without finding customer pain and iterating on that pain. Now, we do it in a, in a kind of a really neat way. We start with the ideas and through those ideas, we rank them against what do we believe the market opportunity is. So like any other business would do. But when you get to incubation, we will do no less than somewhere between 150 to 2,000 customer interviews of a potential decision maker. And the reason it can vary so much in size and scope is if we get the huge pain up front, 150 decision makers is enough to get 10 to 20 customers. And that's what we require to move forward. But if you're changing your scope and you're changing what the product is actually going to be, which we could do up to 20 times, as that happens, you talk to more and more people in order to iterate. The great thing about that iteration is that when you're done, everybody feels that bought into the process. Like they helped you develop that and now they know they have the pain and that's going to solve it for them. So you get an entrenched customer base by doing it that way. I don't think this question is going to take us backwards, but it connects what you just said with something you said a few minutes ago about trying to tackle really big, interesting problems, inventing yeah. the future. You know, a big part of inventing the future is, you know, you have to invent things that don't exist today, you know, yep. often. 
And, um, you know, you're talking about market pain. You're talking about here's these things, these solvable problems. Your career, very interesting. You've been chief commercial officer of some of the biggest companies in the world. When you're thinking about needing to invent something to solve the problem, how many invented things do you identify before you say, folks, we got a problem here. We got to invent seven things that don't currently exist to solve this problem. Seven ain't going to happen. Three. Is there some kind of a like magic Beverly number where you're like, look, folks, three is the number of invented things. That's the maximum number that I've seen that's doable. Once you're over three, statistically, this thing drops way off. Yeah. So it depends on how you use their team. So actually, no, there's not a limit, although I've, I've limited it by year. And we've done that only because of capacity and inability to grow fast enough. So what I find is if you don't reuse the same individuals for each project, and so they're singularly focused on moving it forward, then it moves much faster. The, the shared mind space of product development, which is what I spent most of my career in, where R&D comes in and they get as much IP created and then the product never goes to market because they have 20 products that year and nobody's invested. We really try to get that team so invested that we build upon that team as the product grows and has more success. Now, what happens is we have more than a 50% kill rate even after all of the stuff that we, I told you we do. So as we kill those products, we have that team then that can move on to another idea. So we never try to outsource that talent. We try to insource so that those people that had a product that didn't succeed, we find that they're much more successful on product number two or number three. Perfect segue. Actually, you gave me the perfect segue. I'm going to blow it up now by asking some kind of like stutter step question. Maybe I'm going to ask both questions together in case you're able to layer one into the other. Otherwise, we'll separate them. One, I think there's an idea that, well, there was an idea 10 or 15 years ago. If you need a top tech talent, you were looking at a 50 square mile peninsula you know, on the West Coast of America. And that has really changed in the last 15 years. And now, especially post-COVID, people are everywhere. I think there's still a maybe an idea that perhaps the Arabian Peninsula is not a hotbed of tech talent and, you know, who is going to execute on these big ideas. So that's question one. And question two is I was going to kind of take us into a go-to-market strategy direction. So, you know, really okay. beginning to execute on these ideas. So the connective tissue is, how are you developing these go-to-market strategies? What are they looking like? And then two, related, if possible, are you sourcing a lot of that talent locally? You know, what does that look like for you guys? It's almost the same question in my answer. So I can answer them both in one. So first of all, what we're doing is we're trying to create an ecosystem that's worldwide. So Neom is the promise uh, for Saudi Arabia that can be extrapolated to the world. But Tonimus is a global conglomerate. And so what we're doing is we're looking at all regions of the world for talent. And the challenge in that, in creating that ecosystem, is bringing those people together to be inclusive, to have inclusivity of thought. So not inclusive as other people use it or diverse as other people use it, but really about the thought process and creating high performance, very technical, well-developed teams and making sure that that gives you a 24-hour work cycle so that every region can pick it up from the other one as you go and you can have a day-long cycle for creative. And so for me, doing three days worth of work in one day and being able to create those teams that have seamless handoffs 
that's truly the challenge in creating the ecosystem. The ecosystem happens naturally almost, and you have to have the MENA region in order to make that happen. So by default, you know, we've gone looking for talent. And it's something I'm going to talk about probably a little later, but I've, I've really been surprised about the quality of the talent and the number of ideas and the ability to learn and adapt and to want to learn from, say, Silicon Valley or from Berlin, or from Amsterdam, or from Singapore, right? The idea of inclusive inclusivity of ideas and of constant learning is something that's rampant. And so we've had a really fast uprising, I would say, of talent. From, and one other thing that I'll add to that is that in Saudi Arabia specifically, 70% of the population is under 35 so it adds a different type of dynamic to how they feel comfortable working, what they view as a normal workday and work environment, and why I think that they're so comfortable not just learning remotely, especially during COVID the last couple of years, but also working with remote teams. So for the audience, Beverly's background includes, you know, SVP or C-level roles at really big companies like Ericsson, GE and Hitachi, companies that know a thing or two about global. And of course, two out of the three of those companies would be time zone disaligned with the United States, at least in terms of HQ. I think there's a lot of folks hearing you talk about MENA and the sun never sets on a meaningful technology empire and saying, especially if they've spent time in Asia, which a lot of us have done in the last, you know, I spent many years living in Asia. If your company isn't a critical mass size, what it ends up being is the Asia team is working at 1030 at night to align with USHQ. But it seems like the larger companies potentially have figured that out or maybe not. What's been your experience for folks out there that are looking at overseas workforces and this sun never sets on a, I don't know, I'm making this up, but you know, they used to say about the British empire, the sun never sets on the British empire. And I'm trying to stretch that into tech here somehow. But what does that look like? For those of us who have never worked at a 10,000 or 100,000 person company, is there a way to meaningfully achieve that kind of outcome? Yeah. So I'll start with Hitachi because I think that they got it right. So that they have 300 or they had when I was there, 360,000 employees, which is a massive amount of employees. And what they did is they used each region independently. So each region handed off to the next region, which is one of the places we got this idea for how to construct that. And they found this, they, they used this way of transferring information where it was very seamless and where everybody felt vested in. So at Hitachi, one of the things we used to joke about is nobody makes a decision, everybody takes a decision because you do it in group. Right. And there's only really one leader, and that is the CEO of the company. And so when the CEO says, Hey, you need to turn, everybody turns. There's questions asked, but they're, they're more asked on the way of how do we make it successful rather than I don't believe it's going to be successful. I just feel that that type of methodology and being able to bring that here has been of huge benefit. I, one of our leaders is from Cisco and my boss is also from Cisco and they had a similar experience of being able to work independently in that and that we followed that together. I've worked for two other companies. I won't say which one is which that are very large. And I would say in those, one of them was it's our way, our hours always. And the other one was very independent of one another. So the regions worked completely in silos from one another. And so that I didn't find to be the most expeditious to get stuff done. It might be the most careful, 
uh, for one of them, but it was not the most expeditious. And we're in a rush because we have to change the world by 2030. Right. Yeah. And the decade, the clock is ticking. Exactly. Yeah. So when we're talking about go-to-market, I'll take us back to the main thread here. What does it look like in your mind? So you're, you know, we've talked about the Saudi vision is incredibly grand and they definitely have the resources to pull off grand. You know, we went to the next level, which is how do you take grand and separate wheat from chaff? Because want to waste all of this opportunity and resources. And now we're talking about, okay, now we've identified the opportunities. Now we're really bringing them to market. You are one of the OGs of the IoT space. You've been in the space for a long time. What are some of the things in terms of customer interactions or validation that you're really looking for in that go-to-market where you're saying, listen, folks, until X is true, Y does not see the light of day. Are there certain like, for the audience out there that's thinking about things and they're, hey, Beverly, how do I know that I have a validated product that's ready to go? What are some of the things that Beverly leans on? So it depends if it is a hardware or physical product or if it's an asset light software or cognitive solution or that type of product. I'm going to talk about them totally separately. Um, and I'm going to leave the infrastructure to infrastructure experts, which I am not. I, I know about what I told you, and that's that's kind of my... I can lead, but that's about it. I don't know all the technical stuff. But what I'll tell you on the other side, from a software perspective and also from the venture studios, how we look at that is it's so important not just to look at, do I have a product that people like, but is it repeatable? Is it expandable? Is the product category one where you can do it? Does it fit within your brand architecture? Like all of those are really important just in order to get the word out there and to be able to take it to your list of customers. For me personally, we're looking at enterprise customers. We're looking at B2B. Most people want to always take me to B2B to C on any product they bring me to look at which I'm always like, no, no, we don't do the C part. And you have to look at what your sales organization can do, the size, the scope, and what type you want to run. Do you want it to be a channel partner? Do you really want it to be a one-to-one? Are you going to do small, medium, and large size businesses? Or are you going to go to the consumer? So all of those are just the basic, I don't know what you call them, the bumpers, like in in a bowling alley, to keep you making sure that you're going on track Then I look at the pain scores and not just the pain scores, but who's having the pain. The whoever's having the pain also, so I would not look at a pain score under an 8.5. So somewhere between an 8.5 and a 10, anything below that isn't even worth reviewing. That's a kill. But when it comes to that, you also have to see, are the people with the pain, do they have the pocketbook? And if they don't, then is there a way to create that pain or to show that pain at another level in the organization that does have the financial resources to make that decision? It's way easier to go to one decision maker and then to show the pain than to have to go to 100 decision makers or especially in a decentralized organization, I'll use Hitachi, 800 operating companies. I would never want to go to 800 operating companies. I was the CCO. I'd like to make that decision for everybody right? And that way it's easier. So as selling your product, I think you need to look at those things as well, right? Who's your target market? Who's your target audience? Who has the money? And is it repeatable? And then also deal size. Every organization and every product has a different deal size that they need in order to hit their IRR as well as their, you know, to drive down their cost of goods sold. So for us, you know, those are very large deals. And if a product can't produce that large deal and it doesn't have a reseller flavor to it, like for us, it wouldn't work. 
I think we have arrived at ground level now. So this is the stuff we love on the show. You know, how do you take vision? A lot of listeners of this show, we hear it time and again, you know, they are, I call them out of practice engineers that are now the folks leading these initiatives. And, you know, they're saying, okay, how do I make this actionable? You know, so oftentimes they are not the creator of the strategy. They are the receiver of the strategy. And then they need to go make this ROI positive. You seem world-class at this. You know, often what we hear in life is it's not the destination, it's the journey. But the destination you guys are going towards seems pretty cool. What's next for you guys? I mean, because you're you've got a, you know, we're talking about 2030. So you got several years to quote unquote destination. Yeah. Give us a picture of not 2030, but like what are we gonna see in 23, 24, 25? Well, I'm going to be on a beach somewhere, retired, hopefully. (laughs) But let me tell you where the company is going. The company is really looking at acquisitions. You get to a certain size and scope and and you have the fan will we have that is happening with all the new products where we already know that we have several unicorns in there. We already have the pre-orders, the look, the feel, you know, we know that that's where we're going. And so now it's how do we deliver that in a very effective way at the massive growth where you can't hire fast enough to meet your demand. It was about the question you were asking me earlier. You asked me that about product. So the creation of the product is the beginning, but the delivery is the hard part to me. You know, you can make a great idea, but if you can't deliver it, how many products have we seen fail because they couldn't deliver on their promise? There's been massively great ideas. Normally, funding is also the other criteria. I don't have that issue with this project, but it's the first time in my life I hadn't didn't have to worry about funding the product as well or project. So what we're looking at is who can we acquire and to help with that delivery and how fast can we do that? And also, how can we bring in those great engineering minds to make sure that that fan will of ideas doesn't die? So we're looking at those two big things, looking at the think tanks, looking at how to partner with universities around the world, as well as looking at how to acquire large delivery organizations. And I would tell you, you'll see that in the next 12 months, for sure. Well, that is a lot for 12 months. So you heard it here first, (laughs) you know, before or around the time of Halloween 2023, we're going to see a lot of movement. So here's a question. I'll close this out with this ask this, I think of everyone on the show, but you're the first guest we've had this based in Saudi. And we don't know a lot about the Middle East region on the show, or at least we don't get a lot of folks that uh, are doing work there. Who are some IoT companies doing good work out there that more people should be talking about? Yeah, well, it's interesting. There are so many. And the fact that the world doesn't know about them, I didn't know about them either when I came. There is a university called KAUST, which is the things that they're doing are second to none in the world. And what I look forward to is now that the borders are open and people can come in and there are, there's visitation and there's tourism projects and you can you know get tours and all that, I think that it'll be amazing for the world to actually see it. And since you came in 2007, I have to tell you, the country has changed amazingly. Like there's probably very little that you would recognize at this time. People don't look the same. People don't act the same. People like me come and are so very well and warmly accepted. I think that the bigger thing isn't just who's there, but what a warm welcome 
anybody from around the world would receive incoming and wanting to partner or wanting to learn or wanting to share information, not just from a university perspective, but also the ministries. So a lot of the businesses have either investment from the public investment fund, which is called PIF, or they have ministry investment from like the Ministry of Information Technology. His Excellency Al Swaho is actually our chairman of our board. And all of those have amazing technologies that they're building for their country but that are, they're also using for their individual cities and for, you know, resale to other regions and the world. So I would tell everybody that when you come, you should think outside the box. We have a very limited in America, a very limited view of what government is, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. And I would say when it's used in that way to create and develop and share, it's actually can be a pretty amazing thing. We're working with one of these, the Ministry of Culture. And in, in my terminology, I would have never thought of them as a technology company, but oh my gosh, are they a technology company? So they've blown me away. Cool. Well, thanks for uh, giving us a little background on the region. You know, and also thank you for being on the show today. This has been a great we don't get a lot of folks uh, from the Middle East for giving us a glimpse into some of the huge things happening over there. We really appreciate you making the time. Absolutely. Anytime. And I wish you guys a lot of luck. All right, Beverly. Well, thanks a lot. And thank you for listening. Join us next time as we host another IoT executive to talk about some things that went wrong on a journey that went right. Over the Air is brought to you by Very. To find out more about us, head over to verypossible.com and make sure to search for Over the Air and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else great podcasts are found. Don't forget to click subscribe to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Very, thanks for listening.